It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor, too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And hello, everyone. Uh, I mean, welcome to this session. It, that strap in and buckle in. We're going to go through a lot of stuff quickly. But basically, in this session, we're going to focus on your speaking voice and how you can use it to generate more success. Uh, I am a firm believer that if you haven't developed your speaking voice, uh, you're really leaving money on the table when it comes to the career that you're developing. So let's spend the next um, probably about 30 minutes talking about voice. Uh, Jeremy, Dr. Destin, uh, the Pathfinder mentors, jump in anytime if you have a question, especially you, Jeremy, because we've had this conversation several times and you probably are aware of what will be key to some of the people who are watching today. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the voice. We're going to talk about presentation skills and how you can use those to enhance your career. Uh, but we should probably start with, with me uh, and talking a little bit about my voice because it's been great and wonderful that You've all complimented my voice and you're enjoying my voice. I've worked hard to develop this voice. This wasn't the voice that I had when I started out. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was one of those kids who graduated from high school a year early. I was 17. I loved science and math. I went to university to study geophysics. And all I really learned after my first year was that I didn't like geophysics. Uh, and I really didn't know what to do with my life. So I had discovered acting in high school and really enjoyed it. People were telling me that I was really good at it. So I thought, well, you know, I may never get to Hollywood. You know, it's a long way from Darwell, Alberta, Canada to Hollywood. Maybe I'll do that as sort of a you know pastime. I'll get involved with community theater. But then when I got to the point of not really knowing what I wanted to do, I thought, well, you know, I like theater. So maybe I'll do that and it'll help me discover what I want to do with my career. After about three years of working as an actor, I decided that maybe acting was what I wanted to do, and I should really study full-time. But I had a little issue. Even though I was working as an actor, I was doing a lot of commercials. I was doing a lot of what were called back then training films, everything from food safety to jury duty to, you know, how do you sell alcohol responsibly, all those types of training videos, uh, but never with a lot of dialogue. And one evening in one of my acting classes, I got up and I performed my monologue and there was silence. Nobody was saying anything. And I looked at the instructor and you could see there was something on his mind. He gets up, he walks onto the stage, he looks me right in the eye and then turns to the rest of the class and says, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Bradshaw, a very talented young actor, but when he opens his mouth, you can't understand a word he says. And it was true. I'm a rural farm boy from Western Canada, and there is regional dialects. I love Lee's dialect. And I had what I like to call farm speak. 
I was also a lot more nasal back in those days. I talked really too fast. And so my voice was more like this. And I'd say things like, Mom, me and Dad are jumping, you'll pick up truck around the creek there, pick up the collie dog, come to the house. Now, if you grew up in rural North America, chances are you understood what I said. Mom, me and Dad are going to jump in the old pickup truck, go down to the creek, pick up the collie dog, and come back to the house. If you want to be an actor, you can't speak like that. <laughs> Matter of fact, if you're a Canadian and there's lots of American film and television productions that come up and shoot here, you can't sound even Canadian. You have to sound and use what's known as the general North American dialect. So quite often when I'm doing things like work cookie and I'm talking to people like Jeremy, they don't actually realize at first that I am Canadian unless I say sorry and not sorry, which really sort of puts me in as Canadian. But we're going to talk about that sort of stuff as well. And I, but I want to get back to the fact that I did not have a great voice. I thought I was going to hate voice and speech education. And about a year later, I walked into my very first voice and speech class and fell absolutely in love. So as of today, I have a master's degree in acting or performance, and I've got a postgraduate in voice and speech education. Uh, I'm basically what I have done with most of my career. I've spent about 10 years working in post-secondary, working with the next generation of actors, training them how to act on both the stage and in front of the screen, um, and working to develop their speaking voices. Because yes, someone like Matthew McConaughey has that lovely Southern draw, but he has incredibly clear, precise speech. And that's really sort of the key. Uh, where does this all come from? Well, the best way to give you some a bit of a reference is to take you back to one of my, you know, what a great little film, The King's Speech is. And if you've seen The King's Speech, Lionel Logue, who is an Australian actor who ends up in London, ends up working with the king at the time, who is a stutterer. Well, we know that Lionel Lowe was not working on his own. Matter of fact, he was working with a woman by the name of Iris Warren, who became the voice and speech instructor at Central School in London, which is one of the big acting training facilities there. She taught a woman by the name of Kristen Linklater. And I am a Linklater practitioner, which is one of about three main voice study programs. So I'm a Linklater instructor. Uh, we, we all believe that Everyone has a great voice. So this actually is my voice. It's just that when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I wasn't using my voice. And we all do the same thing. Think about how we learn to speak language. You know, you'll go to school when you're about six years old. They'll teach you to read. They'll teach you to write. But who ta taught you how to speak? We learn that generally from the people around us. We learn it from our parents. We learn it from our older siblings. When we get to school, we start to absorb some of what we're hearing from our former, from our fellow students. Interestingly enough, we have sort of charted that things like film and TV don't really have a large impression. Matter of fact, it's more about regional setting and where you where you grow up in. Matter of fact, we can look at the Canadian-U.S. border. And we can take communities which, you know, are small towns on both sides of the border right next to each other and where you would think they would actually have a blended sort of sound. They're both very unique. So it's very interesting about how language develops. But let's look at some about um, what are the, oh, but I have to give a bit of a warning because we're actually going to spend part of our time today looking at your speaking voice. And then we're going to take some time to look at how you can actually use what we're doing today to be more successful, both a combination of your voice and using video. 
but your voice can be a very personal thing. We all sort of sort of take it as who we are is our voice, which is very true for a lot of people. And I, I have had experiences such as when I was working at York University, you know, doing my postgraduate work, I was the guy that they would send the actors to who had come from other countries and other languages. Uh, it was at York University in Toronto. It's a very international program. So, for example, there was a brilliant young actress who, who now has this incredible career in South America. Uh, Fiorella Pinero is her name. She was a brilliant young actress. She wanted to work, though, in North American film and theater and didn't want to always get cast as the Spanish waitress or the Spanish maid. So they sent her to me to work on her Spanish accent to, to modulate her sounds when she was speaking English. So basically, she could speak without a Spanish accent. So I worked with her for about six months, and then she went home for Christmas. Now, back to Peru, she's with her family, and one of her older sisters also speaks English. So one day, her sister and her were having a conversation in, in the kitchen table. Her mother was sitting there. They switched to English, and her mother went crazy. Her daughter's voice had changed. Who was this person? What are they doing in that institution to my daughter? So your voice could become a very personal thing. And I in no way means to put anyone down or you know interfere with your voice, but you can do a lot to change and work on your voice. So let's get into it. I believe there are five things, you might want to write this down, five things that you really need to focus on to start to improve the sound and clarity of your voice. The first one is speed of speech. We know that people can talk very quickly. Auctioneers get to a rate of about 400 words per minute. Have you ever tried to keep up with an auctioneer? It is incredibly hard. We know that some people can speak incredibly slowly and it just wants to put you to sleep. So we actually know scientifically there is a range that if you use that range, it is the best range for your listener. It is the pace that will help them to actually absorb as much information as they can. And that range is about 145 to about 175 words a minute. What exactly is that? It's conversational pace. And you'll notice that it is quite a large range of 145 to 175, but that's because we do need some variety. If I was to speak at the same pace for the entire time, even though I am speaking in that range, you will eventually fall asleep because there is no variety in that. So we need to, and if you think about it, when you're having a conversation with someone you know, you will speed up at times, you will slow down at times, you will take pauses, and that's what we're attuned to. That's what your listener is looking for. Can you go outside those ranges? Yes, of course you can. You can go slower than 145, and I'll recommend that if you're talking about things that are heavy technical things, or if you're talking about concepts. When I talk about the proper way to breathe, I don't say intercostal, di intercostal diaphragmatic breathing, I say intercostal diaphragmatic breathing. And just because I've slowed it down there, it actually helps people to get more of a sense of what I'm actually talking about. So you do want to watch your rate of speaking about 145, 145 words per minute to about 175 words per minute. Can you go quicker? Yes. 
if you are doing something like telling a joke, humor is always better if the pace is a little faster. You do want to be cautious, though, going over about 200 words per minute. If you start to talk at that rate, the brain actually has to work a lot harder to stay focused on what you're saying. And after about two to three minutes, you will start to lose your audience just because their brain is starting to get tired. So you really need to focus on that. How do you do that? The simplest way, and one of the, the little exercises I use when I'm teaching, is find about 150 words of text. Read it through about two or three times, just so that you're comfortable with it. You're not going to stumble over any words. And then time yourself. Make sure your lips are moving. You don't have to speak out loud. I would suggest you do. You'll get more accurate timing. But just start at the beginning, go through those 150 words, and you should be able to do that in about a minute, a second or two on either side. If you're getting through all that material in less than a minute, you're speaking too quickly. If you're still halfway through it and your timer goes off because the minute is up, you're speaking too slowly. So you can actually use that to get more comfortable of speaking in that conversational tone. So speed of speech, how fast you're speaking is one of the big five that most people need to focus on. The other is pausing and phrasing. There are people who do not pause. There are people who do not phrase, but they're both critically important. Let's talk a little bit about phrasing to start with. Phrasing is simply the way that you break up your speech. You probably all know people who have run on sentences. You know, I want to talk to you about this, 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 and this, and this. Well, I can't focus on this, 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 and this all at the same time. So I like to deliver information in sound bits. I want you to know about this, pause. I want you to know about this, pause. And if you use those pauses, it gives the listener's brain time to absorb that information. But once again, we need variety. So all pauses should not be the same length. I like to work with a three-beat system. So a one-beat pause is just the end of the thought. I need to take a breath. I need to recharge. You've heard what I've said. And now it's time to move on. A two-beat pause is a shared moment of understanding. So if I'm talking about intercostal diaphragmatic breathing, and all of a sudden I can see in my audience that the penny has dropped, I'll take a two-beat pause just to let it sink in a little bit more. And then there is the three-beat pause. I'll, in a presentation, I'll use this once. This is the setup for the main point. Uh, so we've all come to the conclusion, and if you agree with me, you will take action today. So you really want to start using those different types of pauses. One, the first will one be pause, just when you come to the end of the thought, this is all I have to say. The second beat pause or two beat pause, give yourself a bit more time when you have those moments, whether it's an individual or a group, you're doing training, when you see the penny drop Give that a little extra time, a two-beat pause, just to make it more solid. And then once again, you all should have, when you're doing a presentation, when you're having a conversation, when you get to those moments of what I'm about to say is brilliant, set it up with that three-beat pause and then let it rest. It'll increase the impact significantly when you're speaking to people. Then we have to talk about, um, well, let's talk about volume. 
volume is becoming more and more of an issue all the time, partially because we now use microphones. They've become very popular and they will actually amplify our sound. However, the ability to talk in a natural setting to a natural group, just using the voice, we seemed in general to be losing that ability. I'm continually going to meetings now where you're sitting around a table and you can't even hear some people when they're speaking. And, I'm, and I hate to, to draw this out, but women are becoming quite noticeable with it. And it's, it's a result of something that's very interesting that has happened over about the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, women have been allowing their voices to slip further and further back into their throats and to the point now where we're almost getting what is known as glottal fry. There's a little bit of a kind of popping sound. And so we've really sort of looked at why have women pulled their voices back? And what we can see from some of the research that has gone on is that as the women's movement has increased, as women have gotten more and more power to compensate with that because they don't want to be intimidating to men, they've actually pulled their voice back. So it's incredibly interesting to me. And women, you really need to be present. You really need to bring that voice forward and stand up for what you believe. So it, you know, it's always very interesting in that way. But you also have to realize that volume is an issue of, of how much breath you're using to support. Uh, I have often gone into do training in organizations where the night before as a team bonding exercises, they went to a professional sporting event. And now I have people who sound like this when they talk because they use the muscles in their throat to get volume. Ha! That's about all the volume I can get using those muscles without straining my voice. That's not where you get your power from. The power comes from the breath. Ha! Opera singers can do a three-hour performance, get on a plane, travel to a city, and the next day they do another three-hour performance. They are the Olympic athletes of breathing. You don't need to be that, that, that strong of an athlete, but you do have to incorporate breathing for volume. As a matter of fact, 80% of the world does not breathe in the right way for speech. Most people are upper chest breathers. You have basically four lobes to your lungs, two up here, which are smaller lobes, and two down below, which are quite large. And when you breathe, the ribs actually bell out of the way to give you more space for more air and thus more volume. So you really have to learn to incorporate your entire breathing system. So here's a little test you can do. Stand in front of a full length mirror and take a deep breath you should see your belly coming forward. Most of you won't see that happening, especially in a world where having a flat tummy is what we want. <laughs> I do not have a flat tummy, don't care about it. When I take a deep breath, my tummy goes out. What you won't see are my shoulders going up. If you stand in front of that mirror and you take a deep breath and your shoulders go up, you are an upper chest breather and you need to learn to breathe with your entire system. For some of you, it'll feel like it's impossible. So here's what you do. Lie on the floor, put something heavy like a book on your breathing center, right about where your belly button is. And you will notice that when you take a deep breath in, that region of your body actually goes up. 
and you can get comfortable, get used to that sensation. The trick then, and this is where people struggle, is standing back up and still having that feeling. It might take a little while, but believe me, you will get it. So you want to focus on breath when you're dealing with things like volume. Plus, we really do want to be connected. There is some really exciting research about how we are connected emotionally through breath. There is a a belief now that the celiac nerve ganglia, which resides in your abdomen area, it's often called the second brain. And as a fetus is developing, they can't actually tell which is the celiac nerve ganglia and which is the brain. We've also realized that, for example, when a three or four-year-old sees a puppy for the first time, their expression is, and they take a deep breath. And we believe now that those emotions are starting to get imprinted in that celiac nerve ganglia. And so that if you want to, as an actor, especially reach emotions, you need to be doing that deep breathing to connect with those motions. You may have noticed that if someone is trying not to shed tears, they'll start to breathe in their upper chest exclusively because if they reach down and breathe with the entire lung capacity, they're going to connect with some of those emotions and they may not be able to control them. As actors, we need to do that. So you need to watch those things as well. Then you also need to look at tone. What is your tonal range? We all are capable of at least 20 notes. And once again, for variety, you've got to use high notes and low notes. You can't sound like a computer and use in about a three note range. And when people get nervous, especially when they're doing things like public speaking, those are the type of things that we'll see. While I'm on that topic, let's have a a 30 second talk about glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. I don't, I don't believe a lot of the advice that's, that's out there. Things like, just imagine everyone in their underwear. I do not want to imagine anybody in their underwear. Sorry. The other thing is just look over the audience's head. You don't actually make eye contact with anybody. And then you have speakers who, what I like to call, are the sprinklers. And it just, once again, becomes repetitive and you can put your audience to sleep. You do need to connect with your audience. You need to be making eye contact with them. You need to see how they are sensing the information. And in in very subtle ways, both verbally and non-verbally, you need to establish a relationship and have a connection with those people. So tone is one of those ways that you can do that. You also, when it comes to tone, you want to watch inflection, especially here in North America with what's become known as upspeak. When we turn everything into a question, like my name is Tom Bradshaw. Is your name really Tom Bradshaw? So that is becoming uh, less and less pronounced in North America. It is still out there. It does seem to be something with younger generations, something that maybe we're growing out of, but it is apparent. Let's talk about, so those are the those are four of the five, speed of speech, pausing and phrasing, volume, tone, and now let's talk about articulation, the speech sounds that you actually use. There are over 5,000 languages in the world. But with all of those 5,000 languages, thank goodness there's only about 100 to about 104 sounds that human beings use when it comes to speech. Not every language has all of those sounds. And you would assume that a language like English, we have 26 letters in our alphabet. Chances are we've got about 26 sounds. We have 44 
general sounds, plus a handful of other ones that we incorporate from time to time. It's one of the reasons that English is noted as the second most difficult language in the world to speak. And excuse my language, but English is a bastard language. English has been influenced by other languages. Uh, we have the original British language of about 700 BC or AD. Then we have you know, the invasions of the Vikings. And it's not like they just came and robbed and pillaged and left. They actually formed communities that stayed. And all of a sudden, after we've forgiven everybody for those few battles, you start to see intermarriage, you start to see interbreeding, and you start to see incorporation of language. So ever wonder why we spell cough, C-O-U-G-H? Blame the Vikings. <laughs> it should be spelled C-O-F-F, but it's not. Then we've got the Anglos, the Saxons, the Normans. They all come in and influence into what we call modern English of today, or modern American, if you want. Um, I'm a big fan of Shakespeare. But Shakespeare can be incredibly difficult to read, to watch, to understand, because it's a poetic form of English from about 450 years ago. Nobody speaks like that anymore. Uh, so watch your articulation. And it's it comes usually in a couple of different forms. First of all, let's talk about people who have learned English as a second or third language. Once again, English is an incredibly difficult language, and there are going to be two issues you're going to face. One is that of all those 104 speech sounds, you may not know some of the speech sounds of English. Your articulators have never had to make that sound. They've never had to move in that way. So your actual mouth may not know how to make that sound. So you'll go to the closest approximate sound which may not be good for me, the listener, because I'm attuned to certain sounds. So you may have to do some adjustment in those sounds. We were talking the other day about accents. As a voice coach, I do not want you to lose your accent. I think accents are wonderful. They make you unique. They're appealing. But what I need is clear and concise speech so that I can understand what you're saying without difficulty. Because if it's difficult to understand you, chances are I'm just going to tune you out. And it's not trying to put English in front of any other language, even though English is really becoming the global language. It's about being able to speak any language in the best possible manner. And it really does make a difference. If, if I speak with a very proper British dialect and was to tell you that I'm actually a graduate of Oxford University in the British Isles, all of a sudden, just using those sounds makes me sound more educated. So the better your speech is, there is a presumption of the more educated that you are. But it's not just for people who have learned English as a second language. I am a native English speaker, and my speech was incredibly terrible when I started out. I had incredibly bad speech where people would ask me to repeat myself all of the time. If you have a heavy regional dialect, or if you just have parents who had bad speech, chances are you do too. Many of you have had the same experience that I had when I was about 15, where you pick up the phone and the person on the other end thinks you're your father. All of a sudden you realize that, oh my God, I sound like my father. Why do I sound like my father? Because that's been my influence. So once again, we learn to read and write in school, but who teaches us to speak? 
We have abandoned speech education for the most part, and it's really become a vital ingredient. It's always been a vital ingredient in business, but it's a secret knowledge that you can hold today. So how is this relevant? So when I started about 25 years ago, working with the corporate world, most of my work was with executive corporate leaders, presidents of colleges, universities, helping them develop speeches and presentations. Uh, I worked with a with one college president who every year they would hold a fundraising breakfast for their student scholarship program. And the president himself had to get up and he had to do a speech. Well, you get this wonderful presentation where they trot out students who the funding has helped. You know, there is the single mom who couldn't have gone back to college without the support. There is the doctor from someplace in Africa who couldn't practice medicine here and was a janitor, but came to this college. They were supported by funding, and today they own their own janitorial business. That can work really well, and you can draw a lot of money unless the president has no passion in his voice. Thank you very much for being here. We appreciate what you do. These people are great. He was killing the event. Now, at the same time, they were raising about $750,000 because it was a good cause. And while I can't take full credit, in the two years that I worked from him, it went from $750,000 to $1.5 million doubled simply because we now had a speaker who was passionate who really had emotional commitment. You'll even notice early at the start of the day when Dr. Destiny was starting to get emotional, I am going, I can almost guarantee everyone here that you became more intent listeners, that you were actually listening harder as Dr. Destiny was starting to get emotional. And you can really use those to attract people. But today we're working in this wonderful world of screen time. And so where I originally started on the stage, working with executives about how to give presentations over the last few years, especially with the lockdown, the pandemic, when everybody was on a Zoom call, it has been more and more about how do I do it here online? And this may be a shock to you, but you're now working with a camera. You're now working with a microphone. You're basically an actor and you're now on film or television. And surprise, even though that most of us you know, may have only been here for a few years, there's over 100 years of film. There's over 70 years of television, and we've learned a lot along the way. So let me give you some advice. You're going to work on all those five things, speed of speech, pausing, phrasing, volume, tone, and articulation. But then you're going to actually start to give yourself some more consideration about doing this. You will notice that my eyes are in about the top third of the screen. If you start to notice when you're watching film and television and they're in the relative close-up, their eyes are in the top third of the screen. That's the way it works. So when you're working with your camera, you want to make sure that your eyes are in about the top third of the screen. Uh, you also want to watch your angle. So, for example, my camera is about eye level. So when I look in my camera, it almost feels to you like we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And that's what I actually want to achieve. So when I am watching someone else speak, I'll usually watch the image on my screen. But you'll notice quite often that when I speak, I'm looking right at my camera, which for a lot of people is not a really comfortable thing to be doing. But just do it enough and you will get comfortable with speaking to this inanimate little object, which is just sitting on the top of my computer screen.
so you have you need to know how to use this more effectively. Uh, this is my backup location. Uh, I actually have a home studio. Unfortunately, um, my internet provider and I are still trying to figure out why my internet just simply dies for about 20 minutes and then comes back and then dies for about 20 minutes. Uh, so this is my backup studio. There are lots of things I would like to change. Uh, my camera's a little too wide. I'd like to bring it into about here. I'd like to shrink this down a little bit um, and uh, set it up a bit more. Uh, when it comes to microphones, this is a $75 microphone. One of these guys. And it also has a mute button, which I accidentally clicked. Uh, uh, it has a USB connector. It's plug and play. It's really simple to use. I also do voice acting work. I have a $1,200 mic that I use for that. Uh, and that's back in my home studio. So you don't have to use a lot of uh, a lot of expense to get into this. But I would suggest that you take advantage of the technology. Once again, I'm a firm believer that you know, the old adage of if you want to be perceived as an expert, write a book. Today, you can be perceived as an expert simply by doing this. You've been talking to experts for three days now who are doing exactly this. As you continue to progress your careers, I believe you need to start doing this. Now, what does this cost? I will be honest with you that if you go to a production company, people that do this all the time, they're going to rent a studio, uh, they're going to rent a professional uh, spokesperson to work with you, uh, they're going to look at one or two cameras, and I'll talk about that in a second, and it's going to cost you probably in the neighborhood of about $20,000 for about every minute of content. I'm not sure anybody here could afford $20,000. <laughs> However... This is a $75 microphone. I already have a computer. I bought a little better camera. I'm probably in maybe about 200 bucks right now. And I have the freedom to do video. You do want to worry about background because once again, everything that you see is feeding your, uh, your mind and your imagination and helping to create an image of who I am. You want to make sure your wardrobe, your makeup, your hair, your setting all contribute to the message that you're trying to be put out there. So I would never suggest, unless you really want to, going to a professional production studio because they're going to cost, going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, also watch some of the things that they're doing today. Uh, it's becoming very popular to have the two-camera shot. So camera one is usually me talking directly to you, and then they switch to camera two where I'm still talking, but now it looks like I'm talking to somebody else. And that's the issue with it. Production companies love to use it. They get to hire two camera people, and the editor is now going to spend at least twice the amount of time, so they can charge you a lot more money. I don't believe that second camera angle works, because here's what's going on. As we're talking right now, and I'm looking directly into my camera, it feels to you like we're having a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation. And as we do, your trust and confidence in me is building. But all of a sudden, if I do this, your, your brain goes to, well, who is he talking to now? Who is the other person in the room? And the confidence level actually starts to decrease. So you have an option. <laughs> you can go to a production company and spend tens of thousands of dollars, or you can work with someone like me and my partner, Nancy Sager. Uh, we've started TBNS Productions, and we are firm believers that you need to be incorporating video on your website. Get rid of text. Nobody reads today. 
having a video and looking good, sounding good will actually help you promote your career. If you don't work on these things, once again, I really truly do believe that you are leaving money on the table. I've gone through a lot of information incredibly quickly. Uh, just to let you know, Nancy Sager and I are actually working on a workshop, which we will be bringing to Jeremy and Destiny and doing through the CBOC website, where we'll actually take a look at both the performance and technical side if you want to be doing things like podcasting. Um, just because you know we're cooking is on and we're doing video right now, one other thing I want to quickly mention is going back to that eye level, that my camera is about my eye level, most people just take their laptop and pop it open and set it on their desk, and now they're looking down at their computer. Uh, don't do that. Stop doing that. You need to raise your computer up. Put old shoe boxes under it if you have nothing else. A milk crate works great because here's what's happening. Your camera angle, that's a terrible angle for almost anybody. It's not a good view. As I'm not seeing the best of you. If you think of film, that angle is what they often use for the horror film. When the monster comes on screen to make it look even larger, <laughs> they shoot upwards. It creates terrible shadows on your face and does not make you look good. At the same time, you're looking down on me your audience, and that can be intimidating as well. So if you want to have a one-on-one -on -one personal conversation, make sure that you have that camera at eye level. And with that, it, I've gone a couple of minutes over, uh, which is absolutely fine. And Jeremy, if we're okay, there may be some questions out there. If not, I'd be more than happy to go on a break. This is Destiny, and Jeremy is on a break himself. And yes, oh. we can absolutely have questions um, if people want to stay, because just to let everyone know that during the lunch hour, we keep this open for open networking. And um, so if you want to hang around, you can. So it kind of runs into your break in your networking session. Um, but any questions from the audience, please? Oh, good. Earlier break. <laughs> no, Tom, thank you. Thank you. Did is somebody, sorry. Did no, I, I was gonna say I'm actually silent this time and um I'm afraid to turn my camera on now. So thanks, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll often be at like a cocktail party and people will be asking me what I do, and I'll tell them and they'll go, Are you analyzing me right now? <laughs> Are you listening to the way I speak? No, no, I'm not. Okay. I'm having a drink. <laughs> I also took it as not just a podcast training, but it but an online interview training. So thank you. Hey, if you <laughs> If you can combine what I can teach you with Jeremy's FBI negotiation tactics and then walk into a job interview or into a potential client, I think you do very well. Carolyn, I see your hand up. Did you it, have a question? No, it shouldn't be up. I don't know where. I'm oh, going. I'm just reading the wrong frame. Christy, your hand is up. Hi, thanks so much. Um, I do have one quick question. How do I know you mentioned women, their voices tend to go down a little bit, but how do women modulate their tone and their volume to come off with that authority, but yet not force dominance? You know, those that have military training are taught to speak with that authority and that dominance. And unfortunately, in a more male dominated world, you tend to come off as forcing a dominance. And so my question is, how do women best go about doing that? That is Great question. Thank you very much for answering it. And even in the way you said that, you know, dominance, uh, what I'm seeing is the force behind it. So you're getting that that power, that volume 
from the facial mask. Once again, you're clenching your vocal folds. Uh, it's coming sort of from here. And that's typically what women do. And it also will drive most of us into more of a nasal quality as well, which is a grating sound. So we don't, that's what we naturally do. That's what we habitually do, but it's not the way you actually do that. So once again, all of the force is coming from up here. You need to drop it down. So people need to work on things like chest resonance. Uh, people think I've got this wonderful bass voice. I'm actually more of a baritone, but I incorporate additional chest vibration, which actually produces overtones, which makes my voice sound richer, deeper, fuller. So just from watching the way that you did that, um, once again, everything's coming from here. Uh, you need to incorporate the breathing and move everything down. And it won't have that forced quality, but it'll still sound rich and forceful. And it will keep you out of getting driven into the nasal passages. Does that help? Lot, lots of practice needed, but thank you for the feedback. You're very welcome. Elizabeth, let's go to you. I just wanted to say thank you so much. This was really amazing. And I guess a couple times you mentioned this, you know, like leaving money on the table and like that, you know, and then right in the end, you mentioned something about like, you know, putting videos on your website and things like that. And um, I just look forward to, I guess it's more of a question comment. I look forward to hearing more about that. Like, I don't know if there's more plans to discuss those kinds of things, like where, how, what, you know, how do you do those things in micro bits or whatever? Um, because obviously I have a full-time job. I'm not looking for another full-time job, but I, I agree with you that like, we're all, we always have to keep our brand up and it's something we always put to the back end because we're like, Oh, I have my full-time job. It's great. And then one day you get that call from HR, like doing layoffs, you know, and then like all of a sudden you like, haven't spent time branding yourself, marketing yourself, keeping your resume up, making videos and blogs along the way and stuff. So I just look forward to more of that. And I'm just curious, I guess my question would be like, is there going to be more of that today? Or are there more resources you guys are, are offering with that? And like, you know, just more. <laughs> so, and thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. Uh, yeah, my partner, Nancy Sager, and I will be doing a presentation probably in the next month or two about how to use the technology to do things like podcasting. Uh, we're also working here at CBOC to bring more part podcasts forward. You know, my, my vision is a whole CBOC broadcasting that we're very much like a radio or television station where almost every day there's new content. So I think there's a possibility for that. Also look at what Dr. Martha's doing where, you know, she joins us on the work cookie podcast, but she has her own podcast. She's doing YouTube videos and getting herself out there. And, and one of the tricks is when it comes to time commitment is don't shoot every week. Do you, know, you, you need to do at least 20 minutes, but if you do a 20 minute podcast, we can spend an hour and a half with you and we can shoot four episodes. And then you've got a once a week episode ready to go. And it's only taken an hour and a half of your time every month. So you have to look at those sort of things. You also have to be committed. It's at least three to six months to build your audience before you're even going to know whether or not you're going to have a successful podcast. So keep those sort of things in mind. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Andra. Yeah, I was just wondering if do you endorse stuff like Toastmasters? I was um uh, I took a couple of readings and it was kind of nice in Korea and one of my professors mentioned it and I he actually sucked as a public speaker, but he really endorsed it and I liked it. Um so yeah, what do you think about that? Um I think 
Toastmasters is a great organization. Um, I've spoken at a lot of Toastmaster meetings. I've spoke at regional conferences. Um, I think Toastmasters is, you know, a great place to go and practice the skills. I think Toastmasters is a great networking organization, um, especially if you target the Toastmasters group that you want to join because they're not all the same. There are some specifically for business. There are more that are, you know, for people who are into other things. Um, church groups will have Toastmasters uh, clubs. So, you know, on its own, I think it's great, but there is a difference. And some Toastmasters groups are better than others. So, you know, what I'll say is that if you go to Toastmasters, you know, you'll get some great advice. You know, you'll do a presentation and they'll say things to you like, that was too fast. You need to slow down good advice. The difference between someone like me who's actually university trained is that I can tell you, you need to slow down to that 145 to 175 word per minute range. And here's why you need to do it. So, you know, if you do have a local Toastmasters, take advantage of that and join it. Um, Adele Carnegie training, you know, is also really good. Uh, and there's a few others out there. But once again, check and see who's teaching the organization, who's teaching the program, what they're into, make sure that they're right for you. Um, people like me are out there. Unfortunately, a lot don't work in the business world. Uh, I've not only taught for about 10 years, but I've been a film coach you know, on sets uh, and on stage as well. And most of my colleagues work in, in those capacities. So there's not a lot of us who work with the business community, but I was very lucky that one of my early mentors got me involved in 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 corporate work about 25 years ago. Hopefully that helps. So yeah, I love to I love Toastmasters and it's a great place to start, but you're probably going to want to need more than they can give you. Uh, Carolyn, let's go to you. So I already know my camera is wrong. So that's fine. I'm trying to slow down my speech so I can take a pause. That's fine. But see as I'm doing all of these things, I'm realizing that I'm overly self-conscious about all this. So for somebody like you, who now is practice it because you practice like you play, as I said the other day, how long do you get past the point of being so self-conscious? Cause I've thought of myself in business meetings or interviews or different things as self-conscious. Now you're just adding 14 more layers of self-conscious on top of self-conscious. At what point does that become, I don't know, in your case, natural? <laughs> well, and, and this is where we have to get into the difference between natural and habitual. So very few people are using their natural voice. They're using a habitual voice, the one that they've kind of learned. So, for example, they're up here in, in Western Canada. There are a lot of people who are extremely nasal. I think it has something to do with the fact of our winters. They're so cold and people get cold. And when you have a cold, you actually become denasal. You can't get any sound at your nasal passages. And so then when it clears up, people just want to put all the sound in there. So that's not their natural voice. That's their habitual voice. And as a Linklater educator, we believe that everybody has this quality of voice. How long does it change? And is it uncomfortable? Yeah, it's extremely uncomfortable. It's something you have to think of all the time. But we know that somewhere between about five and eight weeks that it becomes the natural voice. So it does take a little bit of time, but, you know, most clients within about three months, that the lessons become the natural state. But when it comes to, you know, when you're in a meeting and when you're speaking, all those other thoughts that are running in your head, you kind of need those. It's just that you've got the wrong playlist. So when I'm speaking, 
because now I've done, I've been doing this 40 years. It's much more natural now. It is the way I do it, but there's still, you know, another cassette running in my head when I'm speaking and it is focused on how am I doing, but it's no longer focused on, Oh my God, I'm, I'm bombing here. It's focused on, is my audience getting the message? I can tell by looking at their expressions. And if they look confused, that gives me the opportunity to clarify. So that's the recording that now plays in my head. Um, I don't know how long that took me. Um, but once again, as an actor, you know, we cannot go on stage thinking that we're pretending because we'll fail. We actually have to put ourselves into those situations and actually convince ourselves. So, you know, we, we manipulate ourselves all the time. <laughs> you know, and, and I have had as a director and as an, an academic teacher, I've had students who have confronted me going, wait a minute, you're manipulating me during coaching. And my response is, yes, yes, I, to I totally am. I am manipulating you for your benefit, not for mine, <laughs> for your benefit. And that, at least in the field of theater and acting, that's how we justify what we do. I'm not manipulating anybody. I'm not telling you to change your voice or how to change your voice for me. This is for you to help you grow. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question at all, but it does take some time, not as long as a lot of people think, but really we have to change that recording that runs in our head when we speak to much more of the focus, not on us and what we're going through as we're speaking, but on the audience, because you know, they're vitally important. I'll let Jeannie go, but I had, and you did, but I have a follow-up question. All right. So she's done. Jeannie. I to also answer your question, Carolyn, as far as some of these things. So this whole conference can be kind of overwhelming. There's a lot of things that are being presented. So you've really got to take a look at what for you is going to be most beneficial and don't get overwhelmed or, or completely like I've worked with um, kids with autism and different things like that. And one of the things that I've been instructed is to choose one thing, choose one thing. If you could choose anything to take away from each of these or just one thing so you don't get overwhelmed, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. So that would be my, my take on that. And that's what I try to do. I try to take one thing and take good notes or whatever you can do for you personally. But if you were to take any one thing from each of these sessions, what would that be personally? So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Thank, Thank you. you. Carolyn, back to you. Okay. So follow up to what Jeannie said. I definitely am taking one thing. I have tabs for everything and kind of a tab of what to work on. So I'll work through that workbook for the next 10 years. Once I'm done, I'll let y'all know, but, what I found interesting, and I don't know, don't even assess my speech right now. Talk to me offline because I can't take it. <laughs> Self-confidence is building, but not there yet. Arabic was actually my first language before I was five. And then I stopped speaking nice. it. So right. I can get all those and all the, you know, ochs and all the other weird sounds. So everybody, whenever I was taking Spanish, I'd go into a Spanish class the first time and people would look at me and I'd read the board. And they're like, how do you read that? So I understand what you're saying about sounds. I can sit there, and when I lived in Miami, I'd say, Estudia Española la Escuela por seis años, pero no recuerdo muchos verbos. They're like, oh my gosh, you're so perfect in Spanish. Like, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. I lived in San Diego when I got tutored by an ESL student, you know, and I had yeah. to do English homework, you know, so there's those different ways to pick up language. But I often hear, why are you talking 
black or why are you assimilating to the Hispanics or why are you doing this? So because I've had all those, as you said, cultures coming into me or military or whatever language is coming to me, I find that, like you said, practicing certain things in environments that I'm in change my dialect, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. (laughs) With what you're talking about, I'm assuming, let me just throw this out there, that while you're doing this webinar, you're the Tom Bradshaw that we all hear right now. But if you were to go to the event in Maryland tonight, you'd be a different Tom Bradshaw. I don't know. Maybe not. Do you care? Is this part of who you are all the time or do you assimilate to the environment? So there, there is a fallacy that actors, when they take on characters, are playing somebody different. Uh, that is bad acting. Actors are playing parts of themselves. So there are dominant characteristics that I choose to live by. I choose to be a nice guy, not, you know, an unnice guy, uh, even though there is a dark side of me. So you were the, the Tom Bradshaw that you're seeing right now is my, you know, instructor. I'm on air. This is my on air personality, which is not that far different from who I am in the real world. Um, but it's I'm not just one thing. I'm a bunch of things. So if, if I was going to Maryland tonight, if you were meeting me, yeah, I would be I'd be somewhat different. I might be a little bit more reserved, a little bit more quiet. Um, I'm uh, uh, <laughs> as a voice coach, um, I often really try to teach people that to be a good speaker, you need to be an excellent listener. You know, I've got one opening here, but I've got two openings here. So I should be listening twice as much as speaking. So you know, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd meet a little more calmer, a little less outspoken, Tom, but, but no, this is me. And I've got no, you know, um, I'm not apologizing for who I am because this has been, it's taken me a long time to get here. <laughs> Do you feel like credibility is lost when people, and I say that because I've been in the work environment and I've yeah. been where I've taught a class and then I've yeah. been where we've been to a picnic with the peers. And then I've been where they saw me at Walmart, you know, I mean, just to be, to be real. And if you're like, why are you always trying to be like somebody else? I'm like, I'm not, I'm just me. Well, why? And I, and I do it so unconsciously where I shift between dialects that I wonder. And sometimes I question, am I, is something wrong? Why do I do that? I don't do it intentionally. And even my husband will say, why are you talking to them like that? I don't know. I just fit in and I'm, I'm coming to where they are. So with that in mind and coming to where people are, obviously in, an, in a forum like this, yep. we're all from different places, yep. but in a forum that maybe not this, you know, does, how does that play? And I understand we keep talking about being orthotic self. And I think don't make me misquote you because I will, I'm good at that until I go back through my 80 pages of notes from this week. But you said something about don't about acting as yourself or something like that at the very beginning. And I I can't remember your quote that you said, but it was something that kind of stuck a little bit. And you were talking about, you know, about being yourself and being authentic. So I'd like just a little close out with that as far as the thought in my brain. And again, not trying to take over. I appreciate everybody's comments about my questions and where they're coming from because I'm just weird like that. I guess I'm an intuitive student. <laughs> but we we all have an authentic self. And we are, you know, I, I'd like to believe we all have a, a great deal of belief in our authentic self. But there is a perception that others won't accept us, you know, and we want to be accepted. Um, my advice to young actors is get over that as quickly as you can. You know, it doesn't really matter what other people think of you. We all want to be loved and accepted, 
but we want to be loved and accepted for our authentic self. And I can guarantee you, if you are your authentic self, you will find somebody who will care and love for you, you know, and it's a lot more fun to, you know, play your real you than to put on all these masks and to, you know, hide from other people because there's, it's so much energy. It's, it's like, you know, it's always better to be honest than to lie because then you have to continually support the lie and eventually you'll get caught out. It's much more freeing just to be yourself. It's, it's like young actors will say to me all the time, you know, I want to be the next Johnny Depp. And I'll say to them, you know what? Johnny Depp gets all the Johnny Depp roles. You will get hired based on your uniqueness. Film and theater, television, they're always looking for the next face. They're looking for the next authentic person. And I think it's the same in the real world. You know, we are constantly looking for people who are authentic. But then you have to have the courage to actually play that one role that most of us don't. And that's our true selves. Hello, Dr. Destiny. Hi. No, I appreciate this. I wanted to go ahead and quickly close the session. So that way we don't overdo it for even our work cookie podcast. We don't want to. You know, we want to make sure we capture the audience and keep them going. So with that, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so much, everyone, for your questions, your comments, your participation, um, all of that. Thank you so much. And if you have any further questions, I'm sure Tom would be happy to support those questions during the sessions, maybe, or after the sessions, probably best because he's going to be focused (laughs) later as well. With that being said, I will go ahead and close the session in three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com.